Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 101st episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I'm the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like our graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Robert Bryce. Before I even get to introducing him, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, please go ahead and use the comment sections, type in your questions, um, keep them brief, and we will get to as many of them as we can. So uh, my guest today, Robert Bryce, uh, knows more about energy policy than anyone I know. Uh, he is the host of Power Hungry podcast uh, and the producer behind the excellent 2020 documentary, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, which I was uh, very delighted to have an opportunity to watch at a recent conference where we met. Um, he uh, is the, his many books, uh, some of which I have here, include um, Power Hungry, The Myths of Green Energy and Real, The Real Fuels of the Future, uh, A Gusher of Lies, The Dangerous Delusions of Energy Independence, Smaller, Faster, Lighter, uh, Denser, Cheaper, How Innovation Keeps Proving the Catastrophists Wrong, and uh, his most recent book, A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. All of these are also available on Audible, so we are going to put those links into the chat. Robert, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm glad to be here. So uh, we're going to get to audience questions shortly, but I'm going to preempt one that I have a feeling is going to be uh, asked by many of, of the people joining us today. And that's about the Texas power outage last year. Sure. Um, you lived through it. You've written extensively on it. Uh, I wonder if you could help explain in a nutshell what happened and what are the implications um, should we be taking away in terms of future energy policy? Sure. Well, thanks. Uh, pleased to be with you. Um, the, the blackouts were caused by, as I explained in a Dallas Morning News article last August, it was an epic government failure. The, the, government, the, the, the state government designed a market that is fundamentally flawed. And one of the key, the, the key flaws is that allowed the entrance <clears throat> and addition of a whole bunch of renewable energy that was not dispatchable, in particular wind energy, into the state grid. $66 billion was spent on wind and solar in the years before the blackouts. And then when the, the grid was on the verge of collapse at 2 a.m. on February 15th of last year, effectively all of that investment was worthless as i as i joke about it that all that wind and solar went to cancun with ted cruz it was not of any value 
And so the, the way the grid was designed, the, the way the market was designed for the grid allowed all this uh, asynchronous generation, this intermittent weather dependent renewables to be added to the grid, but they didn't dis weren't able to provide any power when power was needed. And the other key point that is, is lost in, and there was a ton written after the blackouts and a lot, particularly the New York Times and elsewhere saying, oh, those crazy Texas Republicans are blaming renewables. Well, the key part of this that is lost is that there were over six gigawatts, 6,000 megawatts of coal-fired capacity that were retired in the five years prior to the blackouts. So that thermal generation, and that was the coal and nuclear plants that, that performed the best when the grid was on the verge of collapse, the, the, the amount of thermal generation in the state, and uh, in, in particular coal, fell by about 20%, and wind generation increased by 20%. So you add all these factors together, and you made the grid, the, the Texas grid has become more fragile, and that is partly due to these massive federal subsidies for, for wind and solar. Those are the drivers of all this wind and solar that's being added to the grid. And it's a warning to other states. And then the fact that can't, that Texas had a, a black blackout uh, blackouts, widespread blackouts, and the, the, the Texas grid is starting to mimic the grid in California, and that's not mm -hmm. a good thing. Um, have they made any changes that would help to prevent this happening again, or? Well, the state is trying to. <clears throat> the The Public Utility Commission is 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 tweaking the, some of the regulations. Uh, the state legislature passed a bill that allows that gives the the Public Utility Commission and ERCOT, the grid operator, some more latitude. But still, there's nothing that is stopping this massive influx of new new solar, in particular, into the ERCOT grid. And so, uh, I wrote about this recently in Forbes. At, at, if the current trends and the current projections are correct, by the end of next year, by the end of 2023, Texas will have, or the ERCOT grid will have more wind and solar capacity than it has uh, natural gas fired capacity. And all of that means that then the existing thermal generators, the coal, the nuclear, and the, and the gas generators are less economic. They don't make as much money because they're being forced out of the market by subsidized wind and solar. So this is a recipe for disaster. And uh, the, those subsidies cannot be controlled by the state officials. So uh, it, the, the result is the increasing fragilization of the Texas grid. And, and it, I, hope it, I hope it doesn't, but I, I fear it, this is gonna end in tears. Hmm. All right, well, uh, we wanna bring some smiles um, to, to ward <laughs> off the tears. So. I'm ready for some good news. Um, sure. Is there, we, we celebrated uh, Earth Day last week. Um, in light of that, how, how's America doing in terms of reductions in air pollution from lead, smog, carbon monoxide, um, and the like? Well, thanks. And there is a lot of positive news. And I remember the first Earth Day. Um, and if I can just add one little point here about Texas, and that just before we get back to, so I don't forget this. What is going is clear now as well is that in the aftermath of, of last year's blackouts, consumers are taking going to take a big hit. So we've seen electric rates throughout the state now being increased, and some of the cooperatives that uh, took big losses are securitizing some of the debt. Uh, Rayburn Country Electric uh, securitized nine hundred million dollars in losses. Uh, th that may be just the beginning of that, but. Uh, and, and rate payers are going to pay the cost because poop rolls downhill in plumbing and in electric grids. So 
that's the, the, just one last point on Texas. But as far as air quality in particular in, in America, the, the, the trends here are very positive. I would just look this up uh, uh, on the EPA website. You can look at it under air trends in epa.gov that um, since 1990, carbon monoxide in the U.S. is down 73 percent, lead down 86, nitrogen dioxide down 61 percent, nitrogen dioxide down 54 percent, ozone particulate matter, sulfur dioxide Effectively, all of these have made massive declines uh, in the matter of sulfur dioxide, 91% decline. So the, these trends on in terms of criteria air pollutants are very positive. Mm, what's uh, driving the improvements? Well, it's, it's cleaner, uh, cleaner vehicles, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, improvements in emissions reduction systems, both in vehicles, in industry, um, all of these things together uh, are, 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 are helping clean up the air. And I mean, these are these are let's be clear, a lot of this is due to government mandates, but it's been very positive for overall for uh, the, the air quality throughout the U.S. Hmm. Well, um, speaking of the the gas that uh, is going into these new and improved, uh, more fuel efficient vehicles uh, last week, the American Petroleum Institute, which represents Exxon, Chevron, uh, BP and other major um, oil companies endorsed attacks on oil and gas production. What do you make of that? Well, it, it's interesting. I, you know, I haven't really looked at this, um, but it seems to me that this is an effort by the industry to uh, shield itself potentially from carbon taxes or some other form of, of, of regulation. And I understand it. It's a, it, an Exxon had endorsed this before some kind of a carbon tax. And it's as I see it, it's an effort by the industry to kind of inoculate itself and say, well, we we're for this solution. We put this forward and this is what we want to do now. But let's be clear, you know, what may be good for the majors and the super majors is not going to be good for the independents and the small producers because they're, you know, how are they going to pay this? But the, the, the end result, whether it's the super majors, the independents, this idea of increasing the cost of energy that's bad for the poor and the middle class. This is a regressive tax. Let's call it what it is. And um, I'm, I'm opposed to high cost energy and expensive energy is the enemy of the poor. And I live in Austin, Texas, and I've, I've met people here and they say, oh, well, energy's too cheap. Well, these are people that are living very comfortable lives. And, they, you know, the, if they spend three dollars or five dollars on a gallon of gas, doesn't really make a difference to them. But for the tradesmen, for people who I know, who I, you know, I'm friends with, they're hardworking people. They commute a lot. They commute tens, it, 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 tens or even hundred miles a day. Wow. This is a big. This is a big cost for them. And expensive energy is their enemy. They don't want to pay more at the pump. That does nothing for them. So, I understand why big oil is making this move. There's a lot of politics behind it. But, um, you know, I'm I'm for cheap energy absolutely because I'm. It's critical to human flourishing. This is high cost energy is the enemy of the poor. Whether it's liquid fuels, transportation fuels, electricity, all of that is bad for for poor and working class people. So I have a few more questions, but I want sure. to remind our audience, um, this is a wonderful opportunity to, uh, to ask questions with, as I mentioned, um, someone who knows more about energy and energy policy than anybody I know. And uh, if you are uh, frightened and alarmed by what, uh, what we've been seeing at the gas pump and, and concerned about um, these, whether or not the same government um, agencies that 
uh, used the crisis of, of COVID to mandate um, all kinds of uh, civil liberty destroying policies, um, whether they may be using the uh, climate crisis to do the, the same. So um, please uh, submit your questions and, and we'll get to them. But last week, um, Robert, also uh, was a lot going on in the news when it comes to uh, to energy. Um, is, President, is, there, is, is there ever? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, Biden, uh, Biden administration climate czar John Kerry told PBS that, quote, solar and wind are less expensive than coal or oil or gas. They are just less expensive, end quote. So is that statement true? Um, and if renewables are so inexpensive, why does the Biden administration need $100 billion to subsidize them? Well, thank you. I mean, that last question is the key one, isn't it? Right? That, that these are industries, the solar and wind industries have always been driven by subsidies. And they keep making these same claims that are not true. They've never been true. And yet, and now they're being repeated by the the climate czar for the Biden administration. I, I just find it, frankly, just it, it not just disappointing, it, it almost disgusting, because it's just not the case. This idea that, oh, well, because we don't have fuel costs and we'll use this levelized cost of energy, which is a, 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 a fiction in terms of it measuring the actual cost of delivered electricity, it, it doesn't account for Let's talk about what the key constraints are. The land use problems, which are widespread from coast to coast, from Maine to Hawaii even. And I've documented this. Over 325 communities since 2015 have rejected or restricted wind projects. Dozens have rejected or, or restricted solar projects. So and, and this idea that, oh, well, it's cheaper. Well, it's only cheaper if you don't count all of these other costs. And, and what we're seeing lately is, in fact, the cost of, pr of producing new wind turbines has soared in the last few months. There have been reports about them, the cost of the components up as much as 40%. But this idea, oh, it's cheaper, well, it doesn't account for the need for backup generation because the wind doesn't always blow, hello, the sun doesn't always shine, that we know for certain. You have to have an existing grid, electric grid, that has thermal generation that can then step into the breach when the wind fails and the solar doesn't and the sun doesn't shine, which happens all the time. So the maintaining of the existing what is what the reality is, the reality, not the spin. And there is a lot of spin around this issue of cheaper. And I've heard it over and over. And it makes me it triggers the gag reflex, honestly is that, oh, well, it just ignores all these other costs and says, oh, well, it's just that, you know, when you just compare the cost of the electricity itself, well, you, you can't do that. You can't do that and have a reliable electric grid. You have to count all these other costs, including the land, cost of transmission, the cost of the backup, the cost of the fuel, all of these things that get ignored um, in a way that, and including by John Kerry, that I find just fundamentally wrong and, and in fact, dishonest. Well, speaking of the Biden administration, I'm um, sorry for getting I get worked up around this because I just I've heard it so many times, Jennifer, and it's just so blatantly false. And yet it just keeps being repeated. And John Kerry's also speaking up saying, oh, well, we need more and more subsidies for wind and solar. Why? If these are so cheap, why can't they make it in the marketplace? They've already had 13 extensions of the production tax credit for the wind business, 13. And Charles Grassley himself, who is the father of the production tax credit, has said, I never meant this to be permanent. And they want to make it permanent because it's so incredibly lucrative. And these big companies are taking 
tax subsidies. NextEra Energy, which was just prosecuted for killing bald and golden eagles, they have $4.6 billion in tax credits on their financial statements. $4.6 billion in tax credit carry-forwards. It's a massive amount of money. These companies aren't about climate change. They're about subsidy mining. Hmm. Um, so speaking of the Biden administration, they, they appear to be giving somewhat mixed signals when it comes to drilling policy. Um, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> right? Because they, they promised to, uh, they, they, they promised no new leases on federal lands. Right. Um, but of late, they've been touting uh, new leases to bring down gas prices. And yet another one of their climate advisors, uh, Gina McCarthy, last week, assured MSNBC viewers uh, that the administration remains absolutely committed to not moving forward uh, with drilling on public lands. So what's going on? You know, Jennifer, I, I can't make heads or tails of it. I mean, the story changes almost every day. Um, Here's the reality. The, the, the Biden administration and the Democratic Party are worried big time. They are scared witless because they're looking at the November elections and hoping that gasoline prices are fall because this is a populist issue. And they're very concerned about the November elections. And well, they should be because they need a they need a big reality check. And I think voters are ready to give it to them. But then, so what has been the reaction of the Biden administration? It's been trying to straddle the fence. Say, oh, we're for lower prices, but we're not for increased production. Well, you can't have it both ways. And what it was one of the first things that the Biden administration did, of course, was cancel the Keystone XL pipeline. And not only did they did they cancel it, I talked to people at TC Energy who own the Keystone project. They dug out of the ground the piece of pipe that actually straddled the U.S.-Canada border so that they can't. They, they can't just go back and, and restart or reconnect it. They, they pulled that piece of pipe out of the ground. So, wow. but the, 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 the I'll remind you, the, 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 the best description I've heard of the, the Biden administration's energy policy is they have a lot of tactics, but no strategy. I mean, they're doing all this stuff, but there's no end strategy for them. And so you have Biden not only saying, and Gina McCarthy saying, oh, we're not going to drill more on public lands or that we're gonna add more leases, but then they extend, you know, I've talked to drillers who have leases, but they can't get permits. They can't get the permit to actually drill on the lease. So they're saying, oh, we're gonna lease more land, but if you don't give the permits, they can't drill. And further, and this is the part that I find just, I mean, just beyond, I, I thought I read it in the onion, but it was that here's Biden going on asking the narco, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela to produce more oil. Well, Maduro is a thug and a narco. And he's asking them to produce more oil. Hello? And then not only that, he's going to the Iranians, the, the party of Hezbollah, asking them to produce more oil. What are you doing? I mean, really, what are you doing? This makes no sense at all. And forgetting, it's not just about 40 years ago that the Hezbollah bombed the Marine Corps barracks in Beirut and led to the largest loss of life of Marine, U.S. Marines since Iwo Jima. Hezbollah was in charge of that. That was their job. And yet we're asking the Iranians to produce more oil while we're not producing oil here. I mean, it sounds kind of jingoistic, but I've followed this for a long time. What are you doing, man? I mean, you know, we need more domestic production. Domestic production means energy security. That's what Europe is learning now in particular. And so the Biden administration, they're just doing all this stuff, but there's no end goal that I can, that I can ascertain, that I can see anywhere in, in the whole thing. Well, I know you're not jingoistic um, because of uh, many of the arguments that you advanced in, in your book, Gusher of Lies. So I'm going to get to that. But um, 
I see even better questions than the ones that I had prepared coming in over Bring the transom here. So uh, Jamie Fowler on Instagram is asking, are we going to see more fuel shortages with some of our refineries being 30 plus years old and no new ones being built? I'm not so much worried about the age of the refineries because what we have seen is the number of refineries in the US has has declined, but the existing refineries have expanded. So I don't see that the issue of, of shortages being a result of lack of refining capacity. Um, what I think is clear, and we've already seen some rationing of diesel fuel, or at least discussions of rationing of diesel in Europe, um, I think the the issue for the U.S. is the, the the mixture of crudes that those refineries can handle. We our Gulf Coast refineries predominantly uh, are favor heavy sour crude from overseas because that's how why, how they were set up. Uh, but I I think what we're going to see is is, is significantly higher prices and that, that we're going to see uh, higher longer. I guess would be the the the, the quickest way to, to to put it that we're going to see an extended period, I think, of higher oil prices because of these issues we've already talked about, about not uh, not enough domestic production and that that in, decrease in domestic production combined with supply issues, supply chain issues around the world for tubular steel products, as well as Russia going offline uh, for all the reasons we all know, uh, all of these things together are going to contribute to this, uh, the, the uh, higher prices for both oil and natural gas. All right, Scott Schiff uh, is asking, do you think a return to nuclear power is needed for Europe to not be as dependent on Russian energy? Absolutely. And um, interviewed Mark Nelson, who's a, a brilliant uh, nuclear analyst, and he's going to be on the podcast in a few days. But we just talked about this yesterday. The Germans, you know, how do you explain Germany? They're going to continue to close their nuclear plants even after the, the invasion of Ukraine. They've decided, oh, no, we're going to go ahead and go forward with the closure of our three reactors that produce something on the order of 40 terawatt hours of electricity per year. But the only way to replace that is either with coal or natural gas. Um, the Belgian government has said we're going to extend the life of our existing reactors. But as far as I can tell, that's not a done deal. But the British, the, the UK, Boris Johnson has said they're planning to build eight reactors. France, uh, Macron has said they're going to embrace SMRs. I mean, if I guess the short answer and the shortest answer would be to say, if there if sanity prevails, if reason prevails, Europe will embrace nuclear and they should. And I'm adamantly in favor of nuclear energy. If we're going to be serious about decarbonization, we have to be deadly serious about nuclear. We're not serious about nuclear in the United States, but the Europeans in particular have to get on it and get on it right away. All right. Um, from YouTube, Patrick Miller is asking Mr. Bryce, given the $66 billion investment in renewable green energy in Texas. What is the actual total cost per kilowatt for that type of energy? Uh, well, that's a good question. I can't answer that. It would be measured in kilowatt hours or, I mean, the, the 66 billion was for the capacity that was installed as well as the transmission lines. Um, you know, the what proponents would argue is that that's bringing down the cost of electricity to the consumer. Well, in some cases, that's true because they're they're bidding into the market at prices that are less than the thermal generators. But that's maybe good for a little while. But if you put those thermal generators out of business or you prevent new thermal generation from being built, you make the overall grid more fragile. And that's what we've seen. 
And so now, you know, Generac sales in Texas are skyrocketing. They're skyrocketing in California. We have a grid that's less reliable because we don't have the amount of thermal backup, the amount of thermal generation that's absolutely needed during times of high demand. So uh, efficiency can help some, but it, 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 you know, we're not going to efficiency way our, our way out of this. We need to continue building new power plants. All right, uh, on Twitter, Anthony Bosco asks, should we be concerned that more LNG export terminals are uh, decided to build in places like Mexico instead of the United States? That's interesting. I don't, I don't know whether those, if it's being built in Mexico, I'm not, not familiar with this, whether that's going to be fed with an American natural gas. Uh, I will say that the what we're seeing now with the the surge in LNG exports from the U.S. that it's in fact driving up the price of domestic natural gas. That's clear, and because we're now American natural gas, like American oil, is effectively being traded at an international benchmark. Now that we're not quite there yet, right? We still have the Henry Hub benchmark for gas in the US and I haven't looked at it today I think it's five or six dollars or maybe it's even higher than that I haven't looked at it in several days whereas in Europe it's thirty two dollars so if you're in the LNG business you can buy American gas even at seven dollars liquefy it for three four five dollars ship it across the Atlantic and make a handsome profit so that's what we're seeing but it's this you know the LNG exporters are arbitraging that differential in price and uh, some of them are making up we're going to make a lot of money doing it all right, Tristan Egg on YouTube. I think we answered your question on nuclear, but I hate for you to lose your spot. So um, come up with another question and I'll pitch it to uh, to Mr. Bryce. Um, okay, Hannah. If I, if, if, I'll just add one point quickly on, on nuclear, Jennifer, and that is the U.S., we're building two reactors in the United States, two, two reactors at Plant Vogel in Georgia. China is building 46. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission under the Biden administration in January poured out an application for a one and a half megawatt. This is a small reactor uh, proposed by uh, Oklo, Oklo Power, tossed out their application. That was just a few weeks after the Chinese started operating a high temperature gas reactor, a helium cooled gas reactor in Shandong province. China is doing the cutting edge of the cutting edge in nuclear and we're standing here with our teeth in our mouth. I mean, we're the country wow. that invented nuclear energy. We should be leading in this and we're trailing and not trailing by a little bit. We're trailing by miles and miles. And with every passing month, we're being, you know, the, the lead of, the, of China and even Russia is, is, is increasing on the United States. We're just, you know, this administration is full. And you mentioned Gina McCarthy, anti-nuclear people at the top yes. level of this administration. Mm -hmm. All right, um, from Instagram, Hannah Cummings uh, is asking, is there any truth to oil scarcity? It's been talked about for decades, but we seem to keep finding more sources. And that's just it. It's remarkable, isn't it? That the more oil we find, the more oil we find. It's, it seems like it's not possible. And, and, but this is one of the things that is so remarkable about <clears throat> the industry, which is that there's the old saw, where do you find oil? Where you already found it. And so where is the hottest oil play in the world today? It's the Permian Basin in West Texas. It's our, I, I would bet $100 to anyone right now. There are more, more oil and gas wells have been drilled within, say, 100-mile radius of Midland, Texas than anywhere else in the world. And it's still the hottest oil play in the world. So we, there's no shortage of oil and natural gas. Where the shortages are occurring now is a lack of capital to drill for that oil and gas, as well as a lack of roughnecks, roustabouts, tool pushers, the people who know how to run the rigs and the sand chiefs and the frack spreads, 
those people are in short supply, as is the some of the materials that they need. As I mentioned, uh, pipe, you know, basic steel in some cases, all, a lot of these things are, are, are going up in price, and that's affecting the ability of drillers in the United States to drill more wells. All right. Well, I mentioned I wanted to get um, back to your to this book. You, you wrote Gusher of Lies back in uh, 2008, and right. you systematically dismantled the popular concept of energy independence um, in a way that I hadn't seen done before. I think I had actually mentioned something about energy independence uh, to you at the conference and, and you corrected me. Um, so since you've written this book, however, um, America became a net exporter of petroleum products by right. 2021. US was the world's largest producer so I'm wondering if um, innovations in oil production, as well as you know the crisis in Ukraine, showing uh, the downside of being dependent on energy um, from countries like Russia, has that changed your calculation at all? No, it hasn't. And and you know, and I've I've looked at that book. I'm proud of that book. I you know, twenty percent of the book I, I debunked the whole corn ethanol scam, but. The, the we're still an interdependent country. We, yes, we export a lot of crude, but we import a lot of crude. So on, on net, we are a slight net exporter of crude, uh, of oil products, but it's because we're able to, in, to bring in a lot of crude from overseas. So what we've seen in the United States is this massive increase in light sweet crude. That's what West Texas Intermediate is a light sweet crude. Well, but our refiners are not set up to handle that. They're set up to handle the heavy sour crudes from Nigeria, from uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia, from other countries, because they make more money. They can make more product handling that that type of crude oil. So we export one type of crude and import a different type. So we are now just as we were when I wrote Gusher of Lies 14 years ago or published it 14 years ago. We're still very much in an interdependent world, and that's going to be the case for a long time. We are, are we is it are we better off by producing more oil and gas here? Absolutely, absolutely. But but let's not kid ourselves that we're somehow have some uh, what is it autarky that we we you know we don't need other countries. And and also just one last point on this that the idea of independence. Well, who's dependent on who? Is the buyer dependent on the seller? Is the seller dependent on the buyer? We, we are interdependent. I, I gave you a dollar for an apple. Well, you got my dollar, but I got the apple and I'm hungry. I need an apple. So, you know, the interdependence, this is going to change. And I think we're going to see a big shift in supply chains after, particularly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but we're still going to be very much interdependent when it comes to energy um, and in particular liquid uh, petroleum. All right, from Instagram, Isaiah Shar asks, abolish the need for federal permits uh, or the EPA, yay or nay? Well, the federal government has a role and the federal government controls a lot of land and, and resources offshore and onshore. So I'm not opposed to having the federal government own those resources and, the, and the getting a royalty from it because those are, those are our lands. We own them in common as Americans. So someone is has to be in charge of them and someone has to collect that royalty check. And so it's worked well for decades. And so I'm not suggesting that the federal government should give those up. But what they need to do is act responsibly and realize that. And, and, and this was the other one was just amazing. I think it was just uh, uh, the last day or so, the Biden administration said, we're not going to drill in the in the uh, uh, the naval oil, naval petroleum reserve in, in in Alaska. Well, wait a minute. 
Those plans were set aside for the purposes of securing American energy. And you're going to say, oh, we're not going to we're not going to allow that. It's crazy town. I mean, it, these are our resources. We need to develop them. And we shouldn't be going to the, the this narco crook Maduro and asking him to produce more oil. Not that he could because Pedavesa and Venezuela is in, I mean, they're, they're, the country is in shambles. Uh, and, 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 and of course, we shouldn't be asking the Iranians. They're not our friends. They, you know, the people of Iran, I think, are pro-American, but their, 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 their government is, is uh, crooked and, and, and anti-American. So I really want to um, to get into your your documentary, uh, Juice: How Electricity Explains the World. Um, uh, first, maybe just tell us a little bit about what prompted you to to go on on the project, and just a bit about the scope because sure. it was amazing how many countries uh, you visited and how many just different walks of life were incorporated into the into the narrative. Sure. Well, thanks. Well, I'm really proud of the film and I need to give a shout out to my colleague Tyson Culver who directed it and did just a great job in pulling together. We did more than 50 interviews and traveled 60,000 miles and and he made a beautiful film and I was I'm in it and I'm on the I'm on camera, but I wasn't the one who made it. I mean, actually physically put it all together. He did so much credit, you know, tremendous credit to him. Um, but the, the quick backstory is I got in, in 2016, I got a contract to write this book and uh, from my longtime publisher, Public Affairs. And I, th I thought, well, I'm going to write a book about electricity. Well, why don't I make a documentary at the same time? How hard can it be? Well, <laughs> foolish idiot. Well, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and I, I wouldn't do it again, trying to make a, a, write, a, write a book and do a film at the same time. But now that it's done, I'm very proud of them and happy that they're out. But the, but the, the impetus for it was very simple. I, I, in, in 2016, a few months before I got the contract from Public Affairs, I read an article, I believe it was in the New York Times, about power shortages in Nigeria. And I read the article and I thought, well, what's going on in Nigeria? Because I remembered when I was a kid, I mean, it's 40 years ago or more, I saw a piece on 60 Minutes with Morley Safer in Lagos talking about power supply problems in Nigeria. And then I'm reading this article now six years ago and thinking, well, why hasn't anything improved? Why are some countries like Nigeria electricity poor and others like Japan and the U.S. electricity rich? And so that was the... That was the question I, I went to, to try and uh, to answer in the book and in the film. And it's a lot about integrity, about societal integrity, about the countries having a system of laws and people believing in the system, that that's absolutely key. And if you have that, you can attract the capital. And if you have the capital, you can attract the fuel and you can have a grid that works. And if you don't have that integrity, it doesn't work. And so I saw that myself in India. I saw it in Lebanon. I've seen it in Puerto Rico. I mean, you know, where you have weak governments, you have weak electric grids. Uh, well, you focused um, part of the documentary on the um, marijuana industry yeah. and uh, how much energy uh, it was required as totally surprising to um, to cultivate marijuana. So uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and what you kind of hope is the, the takeaway. I mean, other than being kind of an interesting little known fact or, or the or the toke away if uh, the away. we make the, <laughs> the pun here well uh, um I'm, I'm from oklahoma oklahoma has legalized medical marijuana and the the electricity demand in some for some of the cooperatives in rural oklahoma has skyrocketed but and why is that because you can produce a lot more weed using grow lights than you can if you're just growing it outside right and so you have much more control uh, you can produce six crops a year doing it indoors, outdoors, outdoors, you can do one. Or if you're in California, maybe two. Um, 
But the power density, the power requirements of these indoor pot farms is very high. And in some cases, hundreds or even thousands of watts per square meter. You're talking about the same kind of power densities that you're looking at inside a data center like what's operated by Google or Apple or Amazon. So they're enormously energy intensive. Um, and it's an industry that uh, has tried to reduce the amount of electricity it's re that is required, but they depend on these sodium high pressure sodium lights. And those are the ones that make the pot plants grow the best. And so they've experimented with other LED lights and lower uh, higher efficiency lighting, but they're not as as one of the, the pot growers, the black market grower that we interviewed in the film. He said, they, I think I remember exactly what he said, the LEDs, they just don't have the punch. He used that word so that they just don't make the plants grow and flower as well as the high pressure sodium lights, which uh, require a lot of power. And so, in fact, it's been an issue in, for law enforcement where uh, in, in some cities, particularly in California, there's a lot of uh, illicit, a lot of uh, organized crime activity in California growing pot. Um, they'll, they'll track some of these houses down because of their high power bills. Wow. Or, or oh. the growers or the growers will steal the power. And that is very also very common where they'll bypass the meter, uh, especially Chinese and, and Russian organized crime in California, they will buy a house or rent a house, and then even jackhammer around the meter and bypass the meter so they can get free electricity, but they'll be they'll be found out eventually, or in many cases they're discovered because of either high electric bills or uh, or or demand in a in a given neighborhood that's too high for what that neighborhood had been. So, uh, you know, this is one of the ways that they find them, either that or infrared uh, infrared or FLIR uh, overhead photography. They're finding some of these houses that way as well. Um, so that's that's interesting. Uh, people finding ways to siphon off electricity, um, and uh, that, as you talked about before, the integrity of the system being um, so vital. Uh, where else did you find that to be in in the world? Um, maybe the the worst problem. Sure. Well, uh, you know. I'll, I'll preface it by by repeating what I call the iron law of electricity, which is people, businesses and countries will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. Well, I saw it in India. I saw it in, in Lebanon. I saw it in Puerto Rico. I saw it in, in, in Louisiana last uh, September where I went and we shot after Hurricane Ida. People aren't going to sit in the dark. They're going to do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. So we saw in India a lot of electricity theft in some areas in, in, in India. The amount of electricity that's simply stolen is as high as 50 percent. Um, in Lebanon, we saw where the, the grid operator EDL is not reliable. So local people will um, uh, pay the or, or essentially all Lebanese or I correct myself. Effectively, everyone who lives in Lebanon pays two electric bills, one to the EDL and the other to the generator mafia. And these are that's the name for local neighborhood generators who will provide power to their customers when the grid fails and the grid fails all the time. So this is part of the, you know, the way electric grids have developed around the world. And what is clear to me is that the, that people will do what they what they have to do. They'll pay the generator mafia. They'll buy their own small generator. We saw that in Puerto Rico. We saw it in, in Louisiana. They're not going to sit in the dark, even if that feeding that gasoline into that generator costs them a lot of money. They'll do it because they need power. Tell us about what you learned in Iceland. Well, Iceland is an interesting country. I've been there a couple times. Um, my wife, Lauren, and I went there back in 1985, I think. And man, has Reykjavik changed and has, the tourism business has skyrocketed. But 
you know, everyone uh, loves Iceland and I understand why, but it's a tiny little island in, a, in the middle of the North Atlantic with 300,000 people. And it's famous because they have a zero carbon grid. Well, that's because they have a lot of hydropower and they have great geothermal resources. Well, you don't have that in West Texas. You're not going to do that in out in Odessa or in Andrews County, Texas, because there's not enough water and there's no geothermal. So, uh, you know, Iceland is an amazing place, incredibly beautiful, and the people are very friendly. Um, but it, it is, it's attracted a lot of industry, um, both for uh, aluminum refining, for silicon, uh, polysilicon production, uh, because their electricity is so cheap. Um, and so they've attracted industry from all industry from all over the world. Uh, but you know, what has happened in Iceland and their electric grid is not really replicable in other places around the world. Uh, all right, a few more questions coming in online. Sure. Um, Instagram, Frederick Cornell asks, couldn't have Texas's power grid been saved if it was connected to the national grid? You know, this is one thing that's been brought up a lot and um, I understand why the suggestion is made, but my short answer is it doesn't make any difference. Um, there are a lot of island grids around the world and they work fine, Iceland being an obvious one. Um, I'm not bragging on Texas. I'm not about, I'm born and raised in Oklahoma. I've lived in Texas a long time, but I'm not here just saying, oh, I love Texas. And the, But the, you know, there is an ethos in Texas of we're gonna do it the Texas way. And I get that. But there, even if there were interconnections with uh, MISO in, in the North or SPP or you know the inter, Eastern Interconnect, Western Interconnect, there's no, no assurance that those states or those grids had any power to spare. And further, uh, Meredith Angwin, who I quite admire, has written a great book called uh, Shorting the Grid, which I usually have right at hand. You know, she made an interesting point, which was that if Texas had been interconnected with these other grids, they could have pulled those other grids down because the power demand here was so high. So this claim that, oh, Texas would have, you know, we would have, you know, wouldn't have had blackouts had we only been connected to these other grids. Well, they were having the same crisis that Texas was, and that was due to effectively no wind energy being available and massive stress on the gas grid because and, and part of that stress is due because is due to the fact that we closed so much coal fired capacity. So the idea that, oh, there, there would have had a different outcome. Well, maybe, but I think probably not. I don't, I don't, that's not to me, that's not the key issue. The key issue is about the design of the market that allowed the grid to fail. Um, maybe a stupid question, but Tell us a little bit about why Texas, uh, what was the justification or the rationale for Texas wanting to be um, not connected to the grid? You know, I don't know that all of that history, Jennifer, I have to admit. Um, I, what I do know is that the, it was the, the, you know, I've talked to some friends of mine. And in fact, it was a long time ago when I, my first book was on Enron. It was published 20 years ago. And, I, and in the writing of that book, I met a great guy named Jim Walzell who lives in Houston. And he said to me sometime back then, he said, you know, this deregulation hasn't really been good for the I'm talking about electricity markets hasn't been good for the consumer. Well, it was for a little while when everything was fine. But now we hit a crisis point and we're finding out, no, this wasn't good for the consumer. So the, the to me, the, the issue of the isolation of ERCOT from the other RTOs, the other regional transmission organizations in the U.S. is not the most interesting part of the story. It's rather the the way that Texas decided to deregulate its electricity market and follow the the mistakes that were made in Britain. And Britain did the same thing to deregulate their electricity market and say, oh, we're not going to have an integrated utility. We're going to have one transmission company and one generator company and the rest of it. Well, this was the Enron model. 
And what are we finding now? Well, after in the wake of this disaster, the buck doesn't stop anywhere that this deregulated environment led to a market where, oh, well, the market failed. Well, no, the market failed because you didn't set up the market correctly and there is no one held responsible. And so now I mentioned the rising electricity prices due to these other factors, securitization and, else, and, other, and other factors. But now we're facing a tsunami of litigation, both for property losses and for loss of life. And ERCOT is one of the named defendants. Well, if ERCOT doesn't have sovereign immunity and the courts have already ruled they don't, well, who's going to pay for all this, these losses? It's, again, it's going to be the ratepayer. Mm. All right. Um, from Twitter, Iman Farsa asks, what should be the role of a national oil reserve? The Biden administration wants, seems to want to use it to manipulate the market price. Yeah, you're asking about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and I think this move to tap the the SPR was just a bad move. I mean, are we seeing some high prices? Yes, but this isn't a crisis. We haven't seen the shutdown of the Straits of Hormuz, uh, the Strait of Hormuz, um, out of the Persian Gulf. Uh, so, you know, this we're not at war. Yes, the Russians are at war, and the when the Ukrainians are at war, but we're not. And and so this again is the politicization of the energy sector, which in my view is, it is remarkable when you think about other countries like uh, Venezuela with PDVSA or uh, Saudi Arabia with Saudi Aramco or uh, uh, the, the, in the United Arab Emirates, ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. These are symbols of national pride, these national oil companies in those, in those places. Here, the, 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 the super majors and the oil industry in general is just continually demonized by the Democratic Party. And I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm disgusted. But this 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 continual demonization of a sector is absolutely critical for the American economy. I just don't get it. I mean, I know it's been part of the Democratic playbook for a long time, but they don't have an alternative. There is no oil, as Art Berman has, has put it, oil is the economy. We, we, we cannot do without oil. And these ideas that, oh, we'll just go to somewhere else and do something else. We'll all run drive Teslas. No, we're not. We can't can't afford it. We don't have enough copper. We don't have enough neodymium, all these other things. And yet the the oil and gas industry continues to be scapegoated as somehow they are responsible for these high prices. They're not. All right. From Facebook, Ashley Zahn asks, uh, what about, what's the future of energy production? Is there any viability in uh, tidal wave energy or is nuclear oil and coal uh, to go forever. I guess I would add to that, um, just was at a conference last week uh, on abundant technologies, accelerating exponential technologies. And one of uh, the, the, the speakers was um, raising funds for a, um, a company that would use the same kind of um, oil drilling, oil uh, and gas exploration, um, equipment, workers, expertise to drill way, way, way down to get to geothermal. Right. Well, the geothermal has some promise. And but remember, it's a very still a very expensive technology. And you right. have to have a, a sufficient temperature gradient. In other words, you have to find some really hot water down there, hot rocks to make it worthwhile. Um, so I'm not opposed to geothermal. I just, you know, I, I, I've yet to see it work at scale. Um, but 
the idea that we're going to stumble onto some new technology that hasn't been invented. And John Kerry's already said this. Well, we need things that haven't been invented yet. Well, you're going to you're going to stake your energy future, the future of our economy on things that haven't been invented yet. And this is one of the fundamental problems that I have, Jennifer, when I look at what's going on now. And, and, and I'm clear, I'm a critic of the Sierra Club, the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NGO industrial complex, all of these groups, these pressure groups, I don't call them environmental groups, they're not environmentalists. They're standing by while next era energy and these other wind companies are killing our bald and golden eagles and doing so knowingly. And in fact, I would argue intentionally and should have been indicted um, under felony violations of the bald and golden eagle protection act, but I digress. But we haven't, there's nothing new under the sun. We've been looking for alternative energy technologies for decades. The ones we have now are the ones we're going to have. So what do we know? What do we know for certain that works and has a small footprint, a very small environmental footprint, doesn't require acres and miles and miles of, trend, of, of, of territory for solar panels and wind turbines? It's nuclear energy. We need to be serious about nuclear. If we're serious about reducing our CO2 emissions, we need to be serious about nuclear. There aren't, there's a, a, a plethora of different technologies that have been proven to work. We need to get them deployed and commercialized and out into the market. And the U.S. should be leading, but I'm afraid we're going to cede that, that position of leadership to the Canadians or, I don't know, maybe the Europeans, French maybe, but uh, we're, we're just, we're, we're not progressing our nuclear technology sector in the way that we should. All right. Um, Instagram again, Marcus101 asks, should we push for private power companies and transmission networks, or is it better to reform the current system? Well, what we're seeing, it's a good question, and I think it's exactly the right one to be thinking about now, because let's look at the U.S. grid. We talk about the American grid as though it's one thing. Well, it's not one thing. We have regional transmission organizations like the New York Independent System Operator. We have ERCOT in Texas. We have CAISO in California, uh, the Southwest Power Pool, MISO, PJM, the, uh, ISO New England. We have all these different regional transmission organizations. And then we also have 3,300 different electricity providers in America. So we have 900 co-ops, eight or, eight or 900 cooperatives, 2,000 publicly owned power entities, including I live in Austin, Austin Energy. So it's a very diffused ownership of the of the grid that we rely on and remarkably diffused, the most diffused ownership of any electric grid, electric grid, electric system in the world. So but what we're seeing as the grid becomes less reliable, that's a long preface, as we see the grid become less reliable, we're seeing more entities, even individuals buying Generacs that are essentially making their own private grids. So. I'm in favor of public power. I'm in favor of public ownership. I love cooperatives. They're part of the, you know, the, 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 the living remnants of the New Deal. I think these, these assets should, in many cases, be owned by the public because they are key to the, to the operation of our economy. But if, if the system is failing and the system of governance around it is failing, people are going to secede and they're going to create their own private microgrids or whatever it is to assure that they have power because they're not going to do without. Right from Twitter, um, Sky thinks right asks with the problem with the problem from resource scarcity still an issue. Is this making it difficult for energy companies to maintain and meet demand? Well, sure. Well, let's talk about resource intensity and resource scarcity, and mm -hmm. where where is this hitting the 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 the, ener the energy sector most most particularly? It's electric vehicles and our alternative energy technologies. 
Yes, there are some rare earth elements. Lanthanum is used in the refining process. But all of these alternative energy technologies, particularly electric vehicles and offshore and onshore wind turbines are incredibly resource intensive, not just for not just for land, that's part of it or, or ocean territory. But it's also for for the electric vehicle, hugely copper intensive, uh, uh, manganese, zinc, spherical graphite, rare earth elements, offshore wind turbines, uh, the new ones, it will require as much as three tons of rare earth elements. The, the, there was a great report that was published by the Department of Energy uh, right at two months ago looking at the issue of permanent magnets, neodymium iron boron magnets. China controls 92% of the global market for these magnets. And the U.S. could start now and say, well, we're going to get serious about industrial policy. Well, it won't make a difference for five years, 10 years, maybe 15 years down the road. So when I think about supply chains and I think about the energy sector, what I'm thinking about and what I've been, I've been talking about, I haven't written much about it, I haven't had time, but talked about it quite a lot is we're seeding our supply chain in, in the face of a Russia's invasion of Ukraine to the Chinese. I, I just don't understand why this is being acceptable. I mean, and, and yet... You know, these the, the I mean, why do you think Elon Musk is so closely tied to China? Because that's where he sources the key products that go into his cars. All right. We've got about seven minutes left. Um, let's uh, see if we can get to a few of these uh, last questions. And sure. I'm just really impressed, uh, by the way, audience, by the, the, the quality of, of your questions. Yeah, so um, I de before we close, uh, Robert, just tell us a little bit about where they can find you, follow you, um, your podcast, all of that. And of course, uh, as I mentioned, all these books are available on Amazon. Yeah. So, well, first about the books. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, about the books. You don't have to read them. You just have to buy them. So you, <laughs> you don't have to read it. You just have to buy it. And if you buy it on your Kindle, I make a better royalty. So let's keep let's get that out of the way. Okay. Um, uh, the Power Hungry podcast, uh, we release an episode every Tuesday. Sometimes we're releasing more than one episode a week. I'm having great fun with that. Uh, this week, I had Lisa Lanose from Wind Action on talking about the, the rural backlash to the wind industry. Uh, so uh, I publish those episodes on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, Robert Bryce TV. Uh, and the podcast goes out on all the regular audio outlets. I'm also on the web at robertbryce.com. So I'm, I'm pretty easy to find on the Google. But uh, um, I, I will add just one thing. You didn't ask me this, but... I love this stuff. I mean, I live, this is my, this is my purpose. This is my life, what I do. Mm -hmm. And I'm passionate about it because it's so important. And what I, what motivates me is that there's so much misinformation and so much uh, spin and propaganda that is coming out. And some of it, unfortunately, from the administration. And, you know, we need, we need physics and math. And that's the only, that's what I view as my job is to try and make complicated, complicated things simple. And so, pound the math, pound the physics, and then start over again. So that's, that's basically what I do for the last 10 years of my life. I just, you know, in some cases, just keep repeating myself, but I'm having fun with it. So uh, anyway, yeah, enough of the commercial. All right. Um, okay, so let's maybe we can do a rapid fire on some of these. Um, sure. Let's get to as many of them as we can. Uh, Facebook, James Sinclair, was there any singular decision that ERCOT made uh, that did Texas in or was 
ERCOT at fault for multiple issues that led to grid failure. The, the, arguably the worst decision that was made in all of this, and ERCOT had to shed load beginning at about 2 a.m. on February 15th when our lights went out here in Austin for 45 hours. But the biggest, the most problematic decision that was made, and it was it's not clear why this was made, there still hasn't been a full explanation, why the price of electricity was set at $9,000 a megawatt hour and then was left there for three days. It should not have stayed at that level. It should have been brought back down, but it was set at that and left at that for too long. And that was, of all the mistakes that were made, that was probably the worst one. All right, Instagram, Gavin009, uh, thoughts on Elon Musk's solar-powered neighborhood in Austin? Have you visited it? I uh, have not visited it. Um, I've, I've flown over the Gigafactory. I see it, you know, it's out uh, in the southeast part of town. My my short answer on all of that is that's a very big bet, a, an extraordinarily large bet on a handful of the price of a handful of commodities, lithium, cobalt, copper, uh, nickel, uh, spherical graphite. And, and uh, he's gone very long on all of those commodities. And now they're soaring in price. And in fact, just a few days ago, he tweeted out something saying we might need Tesla might need to get into the lithium mining and refining business. Well, good luck with that. So um, uh, the, the supply chains are the key uh, for Tesla and for everybody else. But um, I, 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 if I had any stones, I'd, I'd short Tesla, but I'm not the first one to say that. So I'm not, not going to short Tesla. <laughs> All right. Facebook, Jay Holmesy, Vero, why do environmentalists praise solar even though they, they can leak cadmium or use up land that could otherwise be used for farming? You know, this, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I've documented this. And I think, Jennifer, we talked about it before we went on the air. There are 300, over 325 communities across the country have, have rejected or restricted wind projects in America since 2015. I've documented it all. You can look on my website and, uh, at robertbrice.com and look at the Renewable Rejection Database. The problem with wind and solar is they require too much land. But the, the, the activist community, the climate activist community, they are just, they're gaga over wind and solar. And, I, and frankly, some of it is just they're, they're on the take. And I say that they get money from these companies, these people that are pushing wind and solar. And so that's what, I mean, look at the New York uh, Offshore Wind Alliance. Look who their members are. It includes the Natural Resources Defense Council and the Sierra Club. What are you doing? This is the, they're putting offshore wind turbines. The plan is to put them in the middle of North Atlantic right whale habitat, a critically endangered marine mammal. And you're okay with them putting turbines right in the middle of their habitat? They're not environmental groups. They're activist groups. And they, they, but they, they've lost their moral compass when it comes to protection of wildlife and protection of our, 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 our land and waters. I don't get it. But it's the same with solar. It's just because, oh, well, it's renewable. It must be green. Jesse Osabel had it right. Solar and wind may be renewable. They are not green. All right, we'll take this one last one. Franco Roman on Instagram, resource wars, myth or potential future? You know, there have been a number of books that have been written about this. Michael Clare among them. I, you know, it's true that I, I think that the, one of the reasons why we've invaded or we have invaded Iraq twice was clearly because of the oil issue and, and Saddam's control. There's just no doubt about it. Um, I don't dismiss the idea out of hand, um, and, and particularly given Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, I think that it's requiring a lot of strategists to rethink what they thought they knew. Um, and Russia, if it is able to hold on to eastern parts of Ukraine, is going to have control over vast resources in Ukraine that um, uh, they'll be able to, to exploit. So. 
I, I haven't given that particular issue that uh, a tremendous amount of thought, but uh, I don't dismiss it out of hand by any means. All right. Well, Robert, very impressive. <laughs> as as advertised, uh, the the breadth of your knowledge uh, about energy, electricity, um, resources is just breathtaking. And um, and this was uh, I learned a lot. Um, so thank you for joining us. Well, that's very and, kind. Thank you. I'm flattered to be invited. And thanks everyone who uh, who watched us, um, who sent us your spectacular questions. Um, if you enjoyed this video or any of the other work and materials that we produce at the Alice Society, please consider supporting us with a tax deductible donation and um, make sure to also sign up for our newsletter. So you will get uh, the, you'll be the first to know about our future episodes of the Atlas Society Asks. So thanks everyone.